dulcet tones of Herb Alpert and the Two on a Brass. Herald, another episode of Fangraphs Audio. Hello, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this Monday edition of the podcast, as he is on most Mondays, is our managing editor, Dave Cameron. In what follows, Cameron and I examine in some depth two pieces he wrote for the site for this Monday. The first of those looks at Felix Hernandez and his loss of velocity here at the beginning of the 2012 season. I asked Cameron what that loss of velocity may or may not mean for Felix Hernandez's future performance, what possibility, if any, there is of him getting said velocity back, and to what degree Tim Lincecum, another pitcher famous for having lost velocity on his fastball while still performing excellently, to what degree Lincecum works as a model to understand Hernandez. Moving on, Cameron and I discussed the shutdown and meltdown as a potential replacement for the save and blown save statistics. We look at what shutdowns tell us that saves don't, and also how relief pitchers might be compensated in a world without saves. Finally, to end this episode of the podcast, Cameron and I look at a number of the day's games that offer interesting pitching debuts, including perhaps most notably the Major League debut of Hugh Darvish for the Texas Rangers against the Seattle Mariners, and a couple hours after that, the Oakland Athletics debut of left-hander Tom Malone, pitcher notable for throwing only a 87 or 88 mile-per-hour fastball, but for recording very excellent strikeout and walk numbers all throughout the minor leagues. It's Fangraphs Audio, it's managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Or I guess you have the sense that all 30 teams are competing equally? Right. There aren't teams that have just punted, except for maybe the Astros. Yeah. Well, how much do you think they are punting right now? Have you seen their lineup? I have. I mean, do they have a record, though? Do they have a better record than other teams at this point? I mean, they do. Like, any team that plays, uh, you know, any semblance of some major league guys have a chance to win a game. So uh, I think the Astros, you know... And they're not trying to lose on purpose, but when you see the team they've rolled out there, it's pretty apparent that winning in 2012 is not their primary goal. Um, and what what did we put their their sort of um, first possible date of competitiveness at? What have we set that at? Uh, I would say 2015 at the absolute earliest. This is a multi-year rebuilding project, especially once they move into the AL West and they have to overcome Texas and the Angels. Uh, this is not a situation they can fix in a year or two. So when do you so of the players they have now, um, say they're competitive in 2015 or 2016, of the players who have, they have now, what what are the players that are likely to be part of a competitive team? I, I would say Bud Norris, if he stays healthy, have a chance to be a pitching pitcher on that next competitive Astros team. Um, maybe Jose Altuve, if he uh, you know shows he can improve his plate discipline and continue to make contact and hit for power uh, despite being you know three feet tall. Um, and that might be about it. I mean, there's, uh, their roster is really a, just a ton of placeholders of, you know, the Jordan Shapers of the world. And I mean, JD Martinez has some upside, but he's not probably a guy you want starting on a team that's trying to win. Um, it, it's basically a collection of guys who are either playing out bad contracts or getting a shot to see if they can be decent role players down the line, but there just aren't any guys that you look at and say, oh yeah, in a couple of years with some improvement in fundamentals and technique, this guy could really be a star. And um, do we think that uh, – no, I don't think Jordan Lyles uh, – or I should say, I think that Jordan Lyles is not actually on the 25-man right now. Is that true? 
I believe that's correct. And he could potentially be a part of their future, although he profiles more as like a back-end starter than any kind of front-line guy. And, you know, projecting, you know, those fringy four or five starter types three years in the future is a little bit of a dangerous game. And then beyond that, we know that um, Jonathan Singleton, uh, who's, who was their first or second overall prospect, depending on how you rate him and uh, outfielder George Springer. We know that Singleton's part of that team probably or hopefully because if he doesn't work out, then that's not good. Uh, and then George Springer, do you, do you see them as being also members of that uh, theoretical 2015-2016 team? I mean, you would, the Astros would certainly hope so, but I think if you look at any uh, group of top prospects, you, you know, out of 10, you're hoping to get one or two to the big leagues and become you know, pretty good players. So I think if we threw all of the Astros' Spartan system in a pile – You'd say, okay, if Singleton, Springer, and everyone else, you maybe you're going to get two guys out of that. And so, you know, they have the number one pick this summer. That's probably going to instantly become their best prospect. Even if you include that guy in the mix, you're thinking maybe two or three out of their entire farm system are going to become, you know, quality major league players in three years. Uh, and they need like 20, <laughs> 20 major league players. And if they only have, you know, five in house, including the guys in the major league level, that's a big overhaul. The Astros finished 29th in our organizational rankings. Um, by the methodology we used last year, or, or I should say by the, by the methodology we used this year. Um, true or false, using methodologies that we'd used in previous years, especially those which emphasize uh, front office, um, would, they have, would they have ranked higher in previous years? I don't think so. I mean, the, the Baltimore and Houston were pretty clearly the two bottom. There were, there were basically no separation between them. I think it was uh, one-tenth of one point at the Astros uh, ahead of the Orioles. And there was a pretty big gap between those guys and the next best team. So even, even if we had given the Astros a lot of credit for their new front office, which, you know, I mean, Jeffrey Lunau and Mike Fast and, uh, you know, Sigmund Ball, they, these guys are, you know, smart guys who – uh, we think should be able to make some good decisions, but this is a, you know, necessarily a front office with a long track record of success, so it's a little bit speculative anyway. Um, but even if we had given a lot of credit and a lot of weight on the front office, I don't think they could have moved up beyond uh, the Orioles, who they were already slightly ahead of. Okay, uh, uh, we're going to depart from that. That was, that was not even part of the plan. That was all uh, improvised, Cameron. Uh, extemporaneous speaking. This yeah. Is the new podcast. Yeah, right. Or it's kind of uh, every podcast episode. But we actually did have a plan today. Uh, discussing early season sort of results, um, we know, of course, that the um, that hopefully we've gotten to a point now where we don't even have to mention that whatever we discuss on the site, uh, you know, acknowledges the presence of small sample sizes. One way of getting past that is by looking at those things that become reliable pretty quickly. Uh, Part of that might be, uh, you know, a swinging strike rate, which is, you know, one of the first things to become reliable. And one of the things that becomes even more reliable than that, uh, you know, after basically um, no time at all, uh, is is pitcher velocity, which is why when we saw Michael Pineda's velocity down during spring, that's a potential issue. And then in his first start of this season, Felix Hernandez, um, his velocity was down. It's certainly down from his earliest days as a prospect. You wrote about that briefly. Could you sort of characterize the situation with Felix right now? Yeah, so during spring training, he was sitting in the upper 80s with his fastball, occasionally hitting 91 or 92, uh, but he was 
still rolling through spring training hitters. I mean, the Cactus League didn't present much of a challenge. His secondary stuff is so good that Felix doesn't need to throw 97 in order to get hitters out. But the fact that he was only throwing 88 to 92 was a little bit of a concern. Uh, but he assured everyone that he was fine, and as soon as the regular season kicked in, uh, he would start throwing harder again. And then the Mariners went to Japan and played the A's in a regular season game, and he didn't throw any harder. And uh, he was still in the 88 to 91 range. Uh, but because the Oakland A's offense is lousy, he was still able to do just fine and pitch well in the opener. Uh, came back and got a tune-up start in Arizona because of the weird scheduling and still threw 88 to 91. He was asked about it after the game and said, don't worry, it's just spring training. None of this matters. I'll throw harder again when it matters. He took the hill on Saturday for his uh, second regular season start in the first one in which we had pitch effects data. And uh, he threw a little bit harder. He got to 93 once. Um, and, you know, his fastball averaged around 91, so it was a little harder than he threw in spring training, but still clearly not the Felix Hernandez of old. I mean, if you look at his average fastball velocity, it was basically in line with what uh, you would expect from a normal sort of James Shields, and I don't think anyone thinks of James Shields and Felix Hernandez in the same vein when you think of velocity. Well, no, and, it, and of course Shields is famous for uh, for pitching backwards, I guess, right, to sort of use his changeup and other secondary pitches to set up his fastball. Yeah, and that's kind of what Felix did on Saturday. I mean, Felix's fastball, uh, wasn't, was by far his worst pitch. Uh, it was extremely hittable. He gave up six line drives. He gave up a, a monster of a home run. Uh, he gave, Kurt Suzuki hit one that would have gone out of most ballparks. So he really should have given up two home runs. Uh, and he gave up a lot of balls in the air, which I, as I mentioned in the post, um, only five of his 19 balls in play were hit on the ground. And Felix was an extreme ground ball pitcher, or has been earlier in his career. So, you do have to wonder if the diminished fastball velocity and the significant uptick in amount of fly balls are related. I and mean, the correlation is not causation, but, uh, you know, the 95-mile-an-hour sinker is just going to get more ground balls than the 90-mile-an-hour sinker. And so, um, you know, with the corresponding velocity loss uh, and the uptick in fly balls, it's I don't know if it's something that you can have to say you'd be concerned with because Felix's secondary step is still so good, but it's uh, it's not a great news. Right, so I, so at this point, we have a certain amount of data on this, I guess, um, but it will give us a certain level of confidence, um, and I mean confidence more in the, you know, in the statistical use than um, than what we mean, you know, colloquially. But but we need to wait for starts now. If we see a, a similar thing, how many more starts would we need to see from Felix to begin to think of this? as something that's actually a trend as opposed to perhaps a variance from, from a couple starts? I mean, I think you want to just kind of track this for the rest of April, and if he doesn't touch 94 or 95 again by the end of the month, it's something to be legitimately concerned about. Um, I did link to, in the in the post, uh, Justin Verlander's velocity chart back in 2008. Verlander started the season throwing 92, and his fastball velocity was well down. Uh, and as the season ticked on, his, his velocity climbed and he ended the season back in the 95 range. And obviously we know Verlander's still throwing very hard today and it hasn't had any long-term impact. But 2008 was also Verlander's worst year by a mile. His ERA was, uh, I think, in the mid-fours. His uh, strikeout rate went down. His walk rate went up. It was just a, an awful year for Verlander in comparison to his normal standards. Uh, and if Felix Hernandez, even if he's able to get his velocity back and he follows the Verlander model, uh, if, if the velocity doesn't come back quickly, I think it could, you know, have some negative impact on his short-term performance. And, um, you know, I think it's definitely something to keep in mind if you're, uh, if you're a Felix Hernandez fantasy owner or, you know, uh, someone with a vested interest in the performance of Seattle Mariners, uh, you want to see Felix throwing 95 sooner than later. What are the, just from what we know, what are the sort of variables that could affect 
uh, pitcher velocity, just from what we know and perhaps what we don't know? Well, I mean, health is obviously uh, the first thing that most people think of. When a guy has significant velocity loss, uh, you begin to worry that there's something wrong in his shoulder. Um, with Felix, it doesn't seem that's the case. Uh, his stuff's still pretty good. His changeup is, uh, at least on Saturday night, was maybe the best pitch in baseball, and no one throws a changeup as good as Felix when his, when his changeup is really moving. So, um, you know, he was able to command his pitches fairly well besides the fastball. It didn't seem like there was a health issue. He doesn't seem to uh, be favoring his arm or dropping any pitches from his repertoire. So, um, if there's not a health issue, it could be a grip issue, it could be a mechanics issue, um, it could be a, a weight issue. I mean, one of the things that's uh, kind of interesting is Felix Hernandez lost 15 pounds over the offseason, not necessarily to get in better shape for pitching, but because he wanted to look better for the ladies. And, uh, you know, a slim down Felix Hernandez who suddenly doesn't throw as hard as a bulked up Felix Hernandez, uh, we can't say that for sure, you know, if he had more weight on him, he'd be able to throw harder. But the fact is that as his weight has gone down, so is his velocity. And so um, it's another one of those things we can't say for sure is the cause, but uh, maybe it wouldn't hurt Felix to start eating a few cupcakes. <laughs> now, or or some, uh, I mean, he could do it responsibly too, right? You know, like a yeah, right. GNC <laughs> sort of situation. The, yeah, I mean, there's certainly ways for him to put weight on besides eating junk food. Uh, and, you know, we don't know that that would definitely fix it. It's just at this point all we can do is kind of point to correlations and say, you know, as his velocity has gone down, so has his weight, and so has this, and, you know, whether one is the driver of the other, we just, we don't really know. Uh, but I would suggest that if you were trying to figure out how to get him to throw harder again, getting him to look like the Felix Hernandez old might not be the worst place to start. Now, another uh, excellent pitcher who has famously lost velocity um, while still remaining effective, and, and partially because of an excellent changeup, is Tim Lincecum. I wonder to what degree does the case, like Tim Lincecum as case study, um, what, to what degree does that help us in thinking about Felix Hernandez? Yeah, I mean, Lincecum is obviously the natural comparison uh, in that both threw very, very hard early in their career, has settled in as, well, uh, in Felix's case, he hasn't settled in, but he's looking like a guy who might end up throwing in the low 90s instead of the high 90s, and both feature changeups that are among the three or four best in baseball. I mean, you could throw Cole Hamels in the mix, and James Shields has a really good changeup, but Lincecum and Felix both featured devastating changeups to have split-finger-type action, really fall off the table. They're swinging missed pitches, uh, that, and they're they're the best pitch for each pitcher, and so um, you know, there's natural comparisons there. But with Lincecum, you know, I think scouts have been projecting injury and velocity loss on this guy because of his mechanics and his size for years. And I think we have seen Lincecum has regressed a little bit. He's not as good as he was when he first came up and he was throwing harder. Uh, he's still a good pitcher, but he's not as good as he was. And so, you know, I, I think if we're looking at Lincecum and saying Felix is going to follow in this career path, that's not great news for Felix because Lincecum is less than what he was a couple years ago. Well, I, and actually with regard to Lincecum, it's interesting. You know, we look at his, his numbers uh, starting from 2009, uh, each of the last two seasons. We've seen his strikeout rate um, decrease uh, uh, incrementally. We've seen his walk rate uh, increase incrementally. And as a result, each of the last two seasons, um, his, uh, his ex-fit minus, um, which may or may not be the best way to judge Tim Lincecum um, because we know that those San Francisco Giants – Pitchers in particular do seem to have some control uh, over batted balls, but um, regardless of that, uh, we have seen his XFIT minus increase by 10 percentage points uh, over each of the last two seasons, going from 66 in 09 up to 77 um, uh, in 2010, up to 87 last year. Uh, now, again, uh, 
we saw his his season debut um, was uh, is sort of um, I guess curious in light of of that progression because it was not his his ability to um, um, induce strikeouts or prevent walks that contributed to his poor start against the Arizona Diamondbacks the other day. He did both of those things very well. Uh, in fact, it was it was a home run prevention that was difficult for him. I think he now owns a, a home run per fly ball uh, percentage of forty uh, of forty percent, um, which is distinctly unlincecum like. Uh, I'm curious what you saw from Lincecum in that start and how how that'll sort of um, integrate itself in your in your knowledge of Lincecum going forward. Well, this would have been a great time to like talk before the podcast and be like, "Hey, Cameron, did you watch Tim Lincecum?" Oh, hey, hey, Cameron, did you watch Tim Lincecum? <laughs> I did. I did not watch Tim Lincecum start. So, personal observation, I have none. Okay, that's yeah. well, that's fine. But I, it is curious, right? Because we know that those Giants pitchers, generally speaking, have appear to have um, established a, a way of preventing home runs. Yes, I mean, that's something that, especially the right-handed pitchers, like right-handed pitchers in San Francisco. For whatever reason, we don't really know, have historically posted very low homer to fly ball rates, Lincecum included, Matt Kane included, who also had home run problems against the Diamondbacks this weekend. Um, you know, most likely that's just a small sample thing where, you know, even if you're a pitcher who prevents home runs unusual on most cases, you know, uh, home runs are a binary thing. It's either a yes or a no. So there's going to be some starts where even if you don't give up many home runs, you're going to give up one or two in some starts. And so, you know, I, I don't know that I would say that this is evidence that Kane and Lincecum are headed for a crash, but, you know, I will say that if you are a starting pitcher who relies on keeping the ball in the park, uh, and that's a big part of your run prevention, you know, that's a little bit worrisome. I mean, that was basically Bronson Arroyo's claim to fame for a long time, and then he gave up a, a almost record-setting amount of home runs last year and was absolutely terrible and this is one of those things that doesn't predict all that well from year to year for most pitchers and you know i think in general if you're going to pick a pitcher uh for the future you want one with low walks and high strikeouts much more than you want one with low home run rates um yeah and probably also not a great idea if you're hope if you're hoping to deflate your home run per fly ball rate um not a great idea to face the diamondbacks in arizona maybe yeah, I mean, it's early in the season, so it's not uh, quite the homer haven that it is when it's hot and the ball flies really well. I and, mean, you know, it, it's still warm in April in Arizona compared to everywhere else in the country, but it's not 100 degrees. And so, um, yeah, but certainly I think the park and the, the context have to be taken into account. And I, I would imagine if Lincecum and Kane were traded to the, the, the Diamondbacks, uh, their numbers would get worse. A big... Uh... A big story by Jonah Carey recently, uh, formerly of Fangraphs, uh, really formerly of a number of places. Everywhere. Right. <laughs> but currently um, currently at Grantland, um, uh, wrote, a, wrote a rather in-depth piece using um, Chris Perez's opening day blown save sort of as the entree, but um, you know, sort of making it conceptually larger than that. Uh, Jonah writing about shutdowns and meltdowns as a uh, as a – uh, an alternative, a useful alternative to saves and, and blown saves. Um, I was hoping you might be able to, to, to characterize Jonah's piece for us and, and why it might be more relevant now than ever, um, and perhaps uh, perhaps ready to to get to gain some legs in, in uh, mainstream. Yeah, I think like favorometric people have been railing against the save for 10, 15, 20 years. It is clearly a metric that. Uh, has defined bullpen management in not in a good way. So three-run lead, 
you know, in the ninth inning, go get the closer, even though that's the situation that most teams win 95% of the time, no matter who they put on the mound. You know, tie game, bases loaded in the eighth inning, leave the closer in the bullpen and go get some middle reliever who may or may not be as good and uh, hope for a save situation later. It's just uh, a weird a weird design where the sport is absolutely uh, ran by this one metric. And, and you don't see in any other sport where, uh, you know, teams are um, coming up with game plans in order to get one player a certain statistic in order to help him get paid. But that's what we see in baseball is reliever valuation is driven by the save. And that's how they get paid in arbitration. That's how they get paid in free agency. Uh, there's been a pecking order established where the, you know, good young relievers eventually become a closer, and that's how they earn money over their careers. Um, it's a it's a very bizarre and inefficient way to pay relief pitchers, and so um, I think what Jonah said, and I followed up on today, in total agreement with him, is that if we're ever going to actually be able to get rid of the save and move away from the system that doesn't make any sense for major league teams, we need a statistic that can replace it and be accepted by the players. That's really going to be the key to moving away from the save as a value statistic. Is the players will have to agree that uh, whatever replaces it. Uh, compensates them fairly and still rewards them for quality performance in the way that they view it. And so um, I think shutdowns and meltdowns have the opportunity to potentially do that, as he linked to in his piece. Daniel Bard has already publicly professed a love for shutdowns and meltdowns. They helped him uh, see his own value as an eight-inning guy who wasn't getting saves with the Red Sox last year. And I think, you know, for these uh, non-closing relief aces, guys like Sean Marshall before he became a closer this year, uh, guys like Mike Adams, um, shutdowns and meltdowns can help identify them as guys who are worthy of significant raises over what they get into the current system, and they can probably rally uh, enough of those guys to say, hey, look, we're going to increase your pay, we're going to say that you're more valuable than save, say that you are. And, you know, hopefully there aren't enough closers in baseball who will, uh, you know, riot against that. The players' union would uh, protest some kind of move by Major League Baseball to uh, reduce the, the save as an important metric of, of reliever valuation. So can you give us uh, just briefly a, a concise definition of, of a shutdown and a meltdown? So a shutdown or a meltdown is basically uh, uh, based on win probability. So uh, if you enter a game and then when you leave, your team has a 6% chance uh, of winning better than when you entered. So if you say your team's win probability goes from 54 to 60% or 90 to 96% or any 6% swing, you get a shutdown. Even if that's uh, 30% to 36% and your team might still not be very likely to win, you get a shutdown for imp- improving your team's win probability by 6% when you were on the mound. You get a meltdown for 6% uh, decrease. So, you know, if you go from uh, 100% to 94% or 50% to 44% or whatever it is, a 6% decrease in win probability while you're pitching as a meltdown. And so um, as it works out, the scale of shutdowns and meltdowns on this 6% swing uh, looks a lot like save. So a really good elite reliever is going to get 35, 40, 45 shutdowns a year with very few meltdowns. And, uh, you know, it's going to mimic saves and blown saves, um, but just reward it in a way that's a lot smarter than uh, did you preserve a three-run lead in the ninth inning. Right, and we should say uh, so the so the leaders atop uh, the shutdown, um, um, I guess uh, leaderboards last year were uh, Johnny Venters, uh, the Braves, uh, who of course not even a not even a closer, but he had 47 shutdowns versus just six meltdowns, and then uh, John Axford uh, was second with 43 shutdowns and three meltdowns. Tyler Clippard and Drew Storen, both of the Nationals, were pretty close behind, both with 40 of, and 10 of each respectively. 
uh, although the, that 10 number is probably then higher than than um, most teams would like to see. Uh, you know, so curiously, I see Jose Valverde here, right, uh, at fifth yep. place. Uh, yep. We know, of course, um, anyone who watched, you know, certainly during the playoffs last year, it was uh, um, mentions of his perfect save record on the, the season in 2012 were ubiquitous. Uh, and yet we see that he has 38 shutdowns and five meltdowns. How is it that a pitcher could could have zero blown saves but five meltdowns? Yeah, so essentially uh, if you enter a game in a, a situation where your team is extremely likely to win and then you harm that win probability in such a way that your team is still able to win but you were able to you reduced your team's chance of winning. So uh, I can't I haven't looked at Valverde's game log specifically, but it's possible that he came into a situation with a three run lead uh, instantly walks the bases loaded, was removed, and some other pitcher came in and bailed him out. So he didn't get a blown save. The Tigers still won, but he did not contribute to that win in any kind of substantial way. Um, so he would get a meltdown for that situation to account for the fact that he hurt his team's chances of winning and someone else had to come in and bail him out. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's the sort of situation, uh, or thinking about that, that, that thought experiment. How could I get a meltdown and still not get a blown save? I think that um, is, is a question that certainly is... is um, important to me to have answered, and I'm guessing our, our listeners. Now, um, in terms of things that might be pre- predictive, right, because if we're paying a player, uh, we want to pay him for those for what he's going to do as opposed to what he has done, what's going to predict uh, shutdowns and meltdowns? Do you think shutdowns themselves are predictive? Or, you know, would saves be predictive of shutdowns? Or, you know, would uh, component stats like, like XFIP or Sierra, would those be most predictive of shutdowns? Yeah, I think I'm actually going to disagree with the statement, at least from a player's perspective. So teams definitely want to pay players for what they're going to do, not for what they've done, but players absolutely want to be paid for what they've done. Uh, major league players see their pay scale as a reward for previous performance, not as a uh, estimator of future performance. And so, you know, regardless of how they expect to be perform, expect to perform going forward, they look at, you know, previous salary, previous comparable salary and say, look, that guy had uh, a worse year than I did and he's making more money than me. I deserve a raise. And so I think any system that is going to have a significant impact on the salaries of major league pitchers has to be retrospective. It's something like we can't introduce a stat that says Jose Valverde had a bad year. When he, They're going to look at it and say he went 49 for 49 in saves and his team got to the World Series. Uh, Jose already did not have a bad year. So we can't look at something like XFIP or Sierra and say, okay, you know, in a context-neutral situation where Jose Valverde gave up more home runs or his batting average on balls in play was, you know, more normal, uh, he doesn't deserve a lot of money because players will never go for that kind of thinking. And that's kind of the nice thing about shutdowns and meltdowns is it is a, a rewarding stat that says this is what you did and this is the outcome you had on your team's games. And, you know, I think uh, for the purposes of, Killing the save, this is the kind of metric we need, and not necessarily a uh, projection system or something that is more predictive of future performance like x or Sierra. Now, you, you mentioned uh, a couple times now the, um, the importance, uh, if we're introducing this stat, or perhaps one of, one of the things it accomplishes, is that it still um, allows pitchers um, and their agents, of course, to point to something that the, that the pitcher has done well. And it's a way to compensate relief pitchers for for their success and not and especially in higher leverage situations in a way that's more representative of um, something that contributes to wins than saves uh, I'm curious though uh, or, or I would suspect that established closers and maybe those who don't who aren't as well acquitted 
uh, whose performances are not as well acquitted uh, by shutdowns and meltdowns. My guess is that they would not care to look at this. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, you would think so. If you uh, So before we started podcasting, I looked at the three-year leaderboards from 2009 to 2011 of shutdowns and meltdowns, and it was almost all closers. <laughs> like, over the last three years, uh, the leaders in shutdowns and in shutdown percentages, uh, Mariano Rivera is number one in shutdowns, which is, you know, if you were trying to convince someone that this is a good statistic and it, and it measures uh, reliever quality well, um, the fact that Rivera is number one is a pretty good place to start. And then you see guys like, uh, you know, Francisco Rodriguez, who also is just behind Rivera. And the percentage of shutdowns and meltdowns, you know, John Axford's number one, Joe Nathan's number two, Joaquin Soria's number three, uh, you know, Rivera and Pavel Bond are above 80%. Um, so I think what we see is the guys who get a lot of shutdowns and meltdowns are these guys who pitch in higher leverage situations because more of their outings are going to result in a 6% swing. If you're a middle reliever who comes in in the seventh inning and your team has a 70% chance of winning, uh, even if you pitch well, you might not get a shutdown for that outing because your team was already in a, a decent chance to win. So I think that overall, this isn't going to be the, the massive shift where Marion Rivera has to go from making $15 million to making $5 million a year. It's just going to promote uh, the guys like the Mike Adams or a Koji Uehara, um, you know, or a Johnny Venters. These are the guys who are going to receive significantly more benefit from shutdowns and meltdowns, and it's going to come at the expense of guys like, you know, Heath Bell or Brian Fuentes or some of these mediocre closers who get to free agency and you know, teams are paying them based on saves. If they were able to pay them as some shutdowns and meltdowns instead, they could say, hey, look, instead of 9 or $10 million a year, we'll give you 5 or $6 million a year, which is what a, a mediocre setup man or a decent setup man like a Joaquin Benoit or someone like that has gotten in free agency. You basically stop paying for saves and start paying for reliever performance in general, and it will help those mid-tier guys uh, kind of come back to the pack, which is probably where they belong in the first place. Now, it seems to me one of the advantages uh, of shutdowns and meltdowns is is if – Coaches decide um, to sort of deploy their bullpens according to this stat as opposed to according to saves. They're actually contributing directly to um, helping their bullpens. So in this case, you see you see these ace pitchers um, are being deployed in situations where they're actually going to have a real effect on the game as opposed to securing a game with their team up by three runs in the ninth inning. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that getting away from the save statistic will give managers more freedom in order to manage in a different way than they have previously. Uh, I do think that there's something to be said for the fact that relievers have pitched uh, better in general as the modern-day bullpen has evolved. And so, you know, there's probably something to uh, rigid roles and players performing in certain instances and knowing ahead of time, hey, I'm the seventh-inning guy, I'm the ninth-inning guy, whatever, that might actually help their performance. So I don't know... Uh, that this call for save to be replaced with shutdowns and meltdowns is entirely a call to go back to the you know bullpens of 30 or 40 years ago, but I do think that it could help eliminate uh, needless uses of the closer, which I think is probably the most egregious um, problem with the system right now. So bringing in your closer in the ninth inning with a three-run lead and no one on base is just a giant waste of time. Uh, it gets them a save, it helps improve their statistics, and gets them more money in free agency, but it doesn't actually help your team win that many more games. But not bringing them into a tie game in that same ninth inning because you're waiting around for a save is just foolhardy and costs team games all the time. And so a move away from saves and towards shutdowns and meltdowns might not, you know, cause a, a manager to bring his closer in in the sixth inning. But if it causes him to bring him in in the ninth inning when they're down by one or tied instead of up by three, that's an improvement. Right. And in fact, I, um, I mean, we've probably seen it in other instances already this season, but. 
I, I think it was uh, the Blue Jays' uh, first or second game of the season. Um, they had uh, they were tied, and you know the game went like 12, 13 innings, and the last reliever. 16 innings. 16 innings, and the last reliever left in the bullpen was Sergio Santos. Right. Who they is, expended their entire yeah. bullpen without going to their best reliever. Right, and I guess somehow they made it, right? Because you don't want to get to the bullpen and maybe have your worst pitcher come in. But you're, you're suggesting that it makes sense, uh, if we're looking at the percentages, it makes sense to use your best reliever in that tie game situation in the ninth or tenth inning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the only reason teams are holding their closers out uh in those tie game situations is because they want their closer to get a save. Like they're waiting for him to have a save situation. And when you're the visiting team and you bat first, you know, you can't win without the home team getting last at bat. So you are going to have a save situation at some point if you ever take the lead. You can't have a walk off if you're a visiting team. So these visiting teams sit around and wait for a save situation and they'll go through their entire bullpen before they ever use their closer. But if you get in a situation where there's like bases loaded, nobody out, you need to get out of that situation in order to give yourself another chance to even come to the plate. And you should probably be using your closer or your best relief pitcher in order to get you out of that situation because otherwise you're going to lose. And that guy's never going to have pitched, and that's a game that you didn't necessarily have to lose. Uh, lo- looking ahead uh, at some games that are going on today or tonight, um, Dave Cameron, we have a, a number of interesting uh, season debuts, uh, in some case major league debuts going on. Um, Chris Sale. Uh, pitches for the for the White Sox, uh, representing his um, first, uh, I guess his first major league start uh, after a couple successful seasons in the bullpen. Um, Tom Malone uh, makes his first uh, start for the A's as a member of an actual major league rotation, uh, and he's sort sort of an interesting uh, case because um, projection systems, even including steamer projection system, which uh, which includes pitcher velocity, seem to like him a lot, um, and scouts. Not so much. It's probably, you know, we don't like to think of the the scouts versus stats debate as a real thing that exists at this point because the two have a lot to offer each other. But Tom Malone um, still sort of acts as a as a as a meeting of those those camps. Uh, Henderson Alvarez um, had an interesting season last year and is now a part of the Blue Jays rotation. Edwin Jackson um, making his first start for the Nationals and uh, last and I'm certainly not least. Uh, I'm sure, certainly not least, uh, you Darvish for the Rangers. I, I'm curious, uh, any of those games, uh, number one, on, on your sort of uh, to-watch list tonight? Well, the Rangers are playing the Mariners, so obviously I'm watching the U Darvish start, uh, which is at uh, 8 o'clock Eastern, and will pre- preempt me from watching all the other games in that same time frame. Uh, but if the Darvish-Mariner game ends early enough, I'm sure I'll flip over to the Tom Malone start, uh, which... You know, going from you, Darvish, to Tom Malone might be one of the great slings in stuff in uh, recent history. And so it'll be exciting to watch one guy throwing 90-mile-an-hour breaking balls that move everywhere and then going to another guy throwing 87-mile-an-hour fastballs. That'll be fun. Yeah, right. But, of course, Malone, you know, from in every opportunity he's been given, he's he's been successful. Um, and, and I know that on this um, this podcast, in fact, and in some of your writing, you have discussed that concept of stuff and, and precisely what we mean by it. Um, now, if we're going beyond just raw velocity and looking at um, and looking elsewhere in terms of this definition of stuff, uh, what does Tom Malone, uh, Tom Malone look like by that sort of maybe more nuanced definition? I mean, his uh, changeup is very good, and I think that's one of the things that we see when guys are reported to not have good stuff but have good performance. 
it's usually because they either have an excellent changeup or some kind of deception in their delivery. Uh, the deception in their delivery doesn't seem to transfer over as well to the major league level, but I think uh, we've seen that the changeup absolutely does transfer over. I mean, James Shields is another guy who didn't get a ton of respect as a prospect and came up to the majors and has done nothing but pitch extremely well off a great changeup and a mediocre fastball. And, uh, you know, he doesn't have a knockout-breaking pitch. It's just this really high-quality changeup. And so if Malone can show that his changeup has that kind of movement and he can command it well, he can certainly succeed. Um, I do think the lack of a big-time breaking ball is going to present some problems in terms of being able to rack up the strikeout rates that he did in the minor leagues. I think, you know, overall we generally see that the pitch that leads to the most strikeouts in the majors is some kind of hard slider or power-breaking ball. Malone doesn't seem to have either of those, so... I think he'll, his path to success is probably in that model of a Minnesota Twins pitcher where he doesn't walk anybody and gets, you know, enough strikeouts to, to make it work. Um, but he's probably going to be a fly ball. And so if he's going to go with home runs, he's got to limit the walks. Uh, otherwise, he's going to go with too many or three, two or three run home runs and, uh, the runs will start piling up. So, you know, if he can keep his walk rate under two and his strike rate over six, um, then he can succeed in a Scott Baker, kind of slowly, you know, Brad Radke, classic Minnesota Twins pitcher kind of way. Uh, but I think it's going to be interesting to see whether he's able to do that or not. Is there a real chance, do you suppose, given the quality of his changeup and, and perhaps the the absence of, of a true out pitch um, in terms of, you know, breaking ball that works as an out pitch, is there, is there a real possibility that he could actually be more successful against right-handed batters than left-handed? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things we've seen is a lot of these these pitchers generally are left-handed. So you see um, the Jason Burgesses of the world or um, a lot of these soft-tossing left-handed pitchers who have really good change-ups and mediocre fastballs. Uh, they run reverse platoon splits where they are better against right-handed batters because that change-up fades down in a way. Um, and it's a really nice pitch against righties, and it's their best pitch. They throw it more often than, than if they had a better breaking ball. Um, and when a lefty comes up, that changeup isn't nearly as effective. It basically fades right back into uh, a left-handed hitter's power zone, which is down and in. You don't really want to be throwing an 83-mile-an-hour changeup down and into a lefty uh, if you can help it. And so um, you take away their best pitch, and it's you know a mediocre fastball and an okay breaking ball, and they don't really have anything that's an out pitch against those left-handers. And so... You know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Malone fell into this category of guys who ran a reverse platoon split, and it was real. Hey, that's excellent stuff, I, and I, I think that tonight's going to be a real exciting night, um, especially with a lot of the debuts we're seeing. Darvish, obviously, Malone, Malone's going to be interesting, and, and some of those other guys I mentioned. This is going to be uh, this is going to be a good night for baseball. I, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, early in the season, every team has hope, and there's uh, interesting things to watch. And, uh, there are more interesting things to watch tonight than most nights. So uh, if you're around the TV, I would uh, recommend pulling up one of the many, many baseball games to watch. All right, cool. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much, Dave Kamen. I'll invite you, of course, to, to stick around um, after I hit stop uh, so we can have, you know, we talk business, uh, of course, uh, but for participating in this podcast, I thank you. Uh, no problem. I look forward to talking business with you as well. Yeah, we're going to talk some serious business. Uh, but in the meantime, that's Dave Cameron. I am and will continue to be Carson Sestouli, and this has been another episode of Fangraphs Audio.